Amen. Acts chapter 16, page 1274 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, just grab that hardback Bible. Turn to page 1274. You'll find Acts 16. I have preached on this chapter many times. I've been looking forward to this uh, section of the book of Acts as we've been working through it. And uh, every single time that I come to Acts 16, I am amazed at the unlimited resources found in this chapter. I was thinking this week if I preached 10 sermons on this one chapter, that I could preach 10 completely different sermons on 10 completely different topics just from this text. It's so rich and so full. So we're going to do our best to uh, stay focused on what God would have us to hear today and trust that He'll lead God and direct us in each way we need to go. We had a fantastic time yesterday at a block party, if you maybe saw some pictures on Facebook or something at that time, I think it's the biggest one we've ever had to date. It was fantastic. We had hundreds of people come. I just want to say thank you to all of you that came and served. It was, it was hot, but it was good. What a great day. And uh, we lots and lots of kids in Meadowbrook subdivision signed up to come to VBS. Their parents were signing them up and uh, lots of people, just lots of wonderful conversations. It was a good, good day. The Lord granted us to reach out and to minister in our community. So we're grateful for that. So I want to begin this morning with a question. I think it's, uh, if you, there's so many very important questions in life that although they're so important, few people can answer them. Isn't that crazy? And one of those questions is, Am I who God wants me to be? Am I who God wants me to be? Now, see, everyone should be able to answer that question, but unfortunately, a lot of people can't. And the reason for that is, is because they haven't answered the question you need to answer previous to that, which is, what does God desire for me to be? You know, what does He desire for me to be? You can't be something if you don't know what that something is. If you don't know what God wants you to be, then you can't answer the question, am I what God wants me to be? And so what does God want us to be? What does God want you to be? What is His purpose for you? Think about some places in Scripture that give us indication. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, the fact that the Bible says that God made us in His image, that we're made in the image of God. That'll give you a clue as to who God wants you to be. If we're made in the image of God, then we know that God Himself, through the Scripture, gives us the blueprint of what God's purpose for us to be is, what we should be like. Then we can go into the New Testament. We can think about these monumental moments like John 17 when Jesus prays and He prays I do not pray for these alone, talking about just his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so in this moment, just before the cross, Jesus, as he prays to the Father, and he's thanking God for allowing him to accomplish the purpose that he's been sent to do, he then prays that those that are his would do likewise, and that many more would come to know him through their words. So those are just 
two simple illustrations of how the Bible will teach us who God wants us to be. But normally when we ask that question, we don't ask it, we, we don't say, well, what does God want me to be or am I what God wants me to be? Normally what we say is, how do I know God's will for my life? That's how most people phrase that question. And I don't think it's a bad question. I just think that there are better ways to ask that question. How do I know God's will for my life? As if it, that there's this idea embedded in that question that maybe God's hiding His will from us or He's, he's holding it back, somehow cloaking it in mystery and that we have to uh, search around and, and feel around through life to try to figure out what His will is. Well, in Acts chapter 16, what we're going to see today is that His will is absolutely positively hiding in plain sight. He's not hiding it. He's never been hiding it. It's so easy to see. It's so obvious that it's remarkable that anyone would ever ask that question. And I know oftentimes when we ask that question, we're asking that question about God's specific will for some situation or circumstance in our life. And what we'll see in this text is the answer to that question and how we find His will. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, this is Paul, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but, her father, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him, so he took him and circumcised him, because the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. Now let's just remember a little context. This is Paul, no longer with Barnabas. They split, remember last week. And now Paul's with Silas. And Silas is one of the leaders from the Jerusalem church. And so now these two have taken off together. And notice the first thing Paul does on his second missionary journey is he goes right back to where the most persecution was faced on the first journey, except for he goes in reverse. Instead of going all the way around, he just goes up over the mountains to the north and right back to Derby, right back to Lystra and Iconium, and right back to where all the trouble was, where he was stoned and left for dead. Now, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you would think to yourself, wait a minute, I thought two weeks ago the whole message was about the Jerusalem council and this issue of circumcision and it not being a requirement for salvation. And Paul was one of the big proponents of making sure that Gentiles didn't have to conform to some legalistic uh, Jewish customs or rituals in order to be saved. Remember that? And so a lot of people get confused by the fact that Paul takes Timothy and the first thing he does is have him circumcised before he goes on his second missionary journey. Like somehow that's hypocritical or wrong for Paul to do. But nothing could be further from the truth. It makes absolutely perfect sense. First of all, Timothy at this point in his life is a young teenager. And his father is, was a Greek who 
we're pretty sure has passed away. His mother was a Jew. Now, according to Jewish law and custom, if your mother was Jew was Jewish and your father was a Gentile, you were considered a Jew. So he would have been considered a Jew. And Paul knew that he was going on this journey and he was going into places that were going to be heavily populated by Jews, and he needed Timothy with him to be able to help him share the gospel. He needed the Jewish people in the places they were going to go to to be able to receive Timothy so that the message could go forth and be multiplied much more rapidly than if it was just Paul by himself. And so Timothy, who would have already been considered a Jew, but who Paul knew that all of these places that they were going, the Jewish population in each of these cities would not receive him as an uncircumcised man. They would not receive him as a Jew. And so Paul takes him and has him circumcised. And that's why you have the explanation and reason why in the text so that you know that there's absolutely nothing to do with this and uh, equating it with salvation. This is just an issue of not being a stumbling block for the gospel. This is Paul's sold-out devotion to making sure nothing stands between him and the ability to share the gospel. We do the same exact thing on the mission field. When I'm on the mission field, we are very sensitive to the culture in which we're in. And so we want to do nothing that's going to hinder the message and everything that we need to do in order to have the message embraced. And so that's exactly what's going on. All right, verse 6. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and come to the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And there a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I want you to take notice of something. I want you to look in verse 10, the last sentence where it says, Immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Underline the word we or put a circle around it or make a notation of that. That's the first time you hear in the book of Acts, we. The book of Acts we know is written by who? Luke. Luke, the historian, has been compiling everything that we've been studying. But now Luke has joined Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so this is the point where they come together. And Luke now begins to talk about we because he's there with Paul. Now look at the significance of what just happened. Instead of heading towards India, God redirects them towards Europe. Now you probably just read this and just think, well, there's some places that I don't know about these places. And that's interesting that the Spirit of God is directing Paul where he needs to go. But I want you to understand the the unbelievable significance of what just happened. Had the Spirit of God not redirected Paul... The gospel would have went, first of all, and primarily towards India. Instead, it was sent to the West towards Europe. Now, you don't think that has significant implications on you and me today in the world in which we live in? And the fact that the West is by far 
the most Christian area of the globe. And a lot of the freedom that we have today, maybe you could equate it to the fact that God sent the gospel in this direction. And it was primarily, and first of all, this way that it came. And right here is where all that began. Because God saw it fit to redirect. Look at verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day we came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out to the city. We went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who we met there. Now, the fact that it's the Sabbath day, because whenever we're following Paul and it's the Sabbath day, where does Paul always go? First when he enters a city and always on the Sabbath. He goes straight to the synagogue. But when he gets to Philippi, he doesn't go to the synagogue. He goes to the outskirts of town to where there's this area where uh, people come and pray to God. And there's these ladies there that are praying. And so that tells us some things about Philippi. It tells us, first of all, that it is not a very God-fearing place because they clearly don't have a synagogue or Paul would have been there. So it's a city, a, a very formidable large city with no synagogue and the people who are God followers are outside and they're primarily women only praying. So that tells us about this city. Look at verse 14. Now a certain woman was there named Lydia and she heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Verse 17. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, that's politically correct, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And she came out that very hour. Now when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And then the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul, 
called out with a loud voice and said, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word, the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And, they, and he took them that same hour, that night, and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Now let's think about what we just read. Okay? You can get your listening guide out. Number one, God takes responsibility for his mission. That should be just painfully obvious from this text. It is God who takes full and utter complete responsibility for his mission. Let's just be reminded of how all this has gone down. First of all, who directs where Paul and Silas go? Who's the director of all of this? Well, back in verse 6, we see that the Holy Spirit forbade them to go into Asia. And then they came to Mysia and they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit stopped them. And so God is the one directing them where they should go. Then if you look at, well, who makes them effective once they get there? Look at verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Did it say God God gave Paul these amazing, amazing things to say. Or Paul was so creative and ingenious in the way that he shared the gospel. No, it says God opened her heart to heed what she heard. This is a very wealthy woman. She's a dealer in purple. Purple clothing was the most expensive fabric there was. Only royalty and elected officials would wear it. It just goes to show you of the... Uh, prominence of the city and the wealth gathered there. And so here this wealthy woman who goes out to prayer out by the riverside, outside the city, Paul and his companions happen upon him. God directs them there. He shares. God opens her heart. Now, who supplies the power that his people need? I mean, who gives the power to Paul and Silas that they need? Verse 18, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. You see, whenever they're in need, it's God directing where they go. It's God making them effective. It's God giving them power and authority over the, the, the whatever it is that they need to accomplish. He then gets them out of prison. They don't break out of prison. They don't call for backup and come and overthrow the prison. God does all of it. What I want you to see is God is the one who takes full responsibility for his mission. You got that? So you don't have to worry about, well, what about this or what about that? God has a mission. He takes full responsibility for the mission. You don't need to worry about all that. It's his mission. He'll take care of it. Number two. God invites us to participation in his mission. Now, you see, 
if I didn't know God took full responsibility for the mission, I wouldn't know whether or not I wanted to participate in the mission because I don't know if, if I could. I don't know how that would work. But now that I know God takes full responsibility, then this invitation is a whole different ballgame. I want you to see that it's in the process, it's in the act of obedience. It's Paul being obedient to what God had called him to do that God directs his steps. And it's the same thing for me and you. When we walk in obedience to what we know to do, God's going to direct our steps. Every single thing in this whole story takes place in the context of Paul and Silas obeying the Great Commission. They knew what they had been commanded to do. And so they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know who they were going to meet. They didn't know what they were going to face. They didn't know. But here's what they did know. They knew they needed to go, and they knew they needed to share. That's what they knew. And that's the invitation. You know, we don't choose what we will do for God. We don't choose that. He invites us to join Him where He wants to involve us. That's His choice. You don't make that choice. You see, you just know, and I know, what God's called us all to do. And we just begin to embrace that and walk in that. And God will direct us where He wants us to be. And He'll put us in the position He wants us to be in to do the things He wants us to do. You see, they didn't just randomly bump into Lydia. They could have, but that's not what happened. They met Lydia not just any day, but on the Sabbath day, right? And where was Paul on the Sabbath day? He went to worship. Why? Because that's what you do on the Sabbath day. Paul encountered the person that God wanted him to encounter in Philippi by obeying what he already knew God wanted him to do. Did he know he was going there to meet Lydia? No. But he knew that on the Sabbath, what do you do? You go to church. And so that's what he did. That's not just a small detail. It's there for us to know. It was that act of obedience that put him in the position to have this divine encounter. And so as we went to prayer, see, they woke up. It was a Sabbath day. And they went to pray with people who were God-fearers so they could share with them about Jesus. We experienced God's specific will for our lives. That's where we get the answers to these specific things about, you know, what, what should I do about this or what should I do about that? Well, you're going to experience all those specific will, God's specific will for your life in the context of obeying His universal will for your life. That's how all that's going to come about. Listen, you can, you can spend all the time you want Asking God all the questions you want. But you're never going to find His specific will for your life if you're disobedient in His universal will for all of our lives. That's something you need to know. You see, obedience to what we know breeds the trust we need for what we don't know. That's where that comes from. Now notice what I didn't say. I didn't say... Obedience to what we know brings us to the place where we know all the things we don't know. No, I didn't say that. Specifically, when we obey what we know, then we gain the trust we need for what we don't know. 
You see, it's oftentimes when we're facing an opportunity to participate with God that we freeze up, we lock up. Why? Well, we spiritualize it. Well, I'm just not sure. God, send me a sign. God, uh, show me for sure. What it really is is that we want clarity. What we're saying to God is, God, if you'll give me clarity, then I'll, I'll do it. If you'll show me what's going to happen, then I'll do it. But you see, the truth is, Do we want clarity or do we really want control? Clarity is just a good sounding way to say we, we want control. See, clarity is comforting, isn't it? Yes. Oh, man, it's, it's so comforting to know what's going to happen next. Clarity makes things easier, doesn't it? Yeah. Clarity keeps all our doubts and fears at bay. Huh. And so we say, God, I need clarity. The success of our Christian life is not predicated on us having clarity. Our impact in this life will be determined by how much trust we have in God. I want you to understand something this morning. Your impact in this life is going to have nothing to do with clarity and have everything to do with trust. Because in order to be the person that God wants you to be, in order to do the things that God's called us all to do, in order to live this life to the fullest for His glory, your life is going to have to be fueled in trust. If you're searching for clarity all the time, you're never going to move. Now, why does God do things this way? I mean... He knows the end from the beginning. He already knows, so why doesn't He just tell us? Well, it's for our own good. If He told us, we may not go. Right? Yeah. See, I told you clarity was about control. We get clarity and then we decide, am I or am I not? Hmm. What about the fact that if, if he tells us, it wouldn't be good for us because then we would depend on something other than him. See, details can be damaging. Details especially that come prematurely in our life. So God uses trust. Trust will determine our success in the mission. Some of you have been stuck in the quicksand waiting for clarity for a long time. And the clock's ticking. And life's passing you by. And things happen. And you, you don't understand them. You can't explain them. But you, you lock up because you're, you're not sure. People will tell me things all the time and they'll say, Pastor, this happened and that happened. And, and then they're waiting for me to say, well, that was God or that wasn't God. Wait a minute. Are you God's child? Well, then, if it happened in your life, He allowed it, right? Yeah. 
Is he, do you believe he's sovereign? Okay, so you may not understand it, but it happened. So I don't, I don't know what it means, but it means something. I shared with some of you uh, a month or so ago on Wednesday night, I remember, uh, well, right after it happened, I was driving down the road one afternoon, and my phone rings. Well, I look down, and the name of the person who's calling me is in my phone. But it was shocking to me because I haven't seen or spoken to this person in years. The lady calling me was my daughter's art teacher in middle school. You know, my grown married daughter. When she was in the seventh grade, that was her art teacher. I remember because she would bring her art projects home and go, look, Dad, look what I made. And I'd go, that's beautiful. <laughs> what is it? Or she'd go, look, do you know what it is? That's what you don't want to hear. You're like, uh, give me a clue. So her, her art teacher, I mean, we're talking about a long time. So I answer the phone. I go, hello. And she goes, I go, hey, how are you doing? I'm thinking, what in the world is this about? You know, you don't want any of those projects back, do you? Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I ain't got them. But anyway, hey, how you doing? She says to me, hey, Tony, you know, nah, nah, nah. and I said, hey. And I said, well, what is going on? And she said, well, I got a situation, and uh, I didn't know who to call, but I knew if I called you, you'd be the one who could help me. I said, okay, what you got? And she said, well, uh, you know my mom? And I said, yeah, I know your mom. And she said, well, she's, there's this young lady that my mom's taking in, and she's pregnant. And I said, okay. And she you knows she's on her own, and it's a bad situation, and she's pregnant. And she wants to give the baby up for adoption. I said, okay. Uh, and she said, and I knew that you would be the one to call, so I'm sure you can find a good family for this baby. I said, okay. She said, I said, text me her number. So she said, well, she doesn't have a number. I said, well, text me your mom's number, and I'll... Go by your mom's house so I can meet this lady and we can talk about this. So then I hang up the phone. Now I'm thinking to myself, what in the world? Am, am I, you know, that's a complex situation, okay? There's a lot of moving parts in this scenario. So I, I hung the phone up and I said, well, Lord, okay. It's, you know, we'll, we're just going to walk by faith and see what happens. And uh, so I'm just keep driving down the road. I'm talking about 10 minutes later, my phone rings. I look at my phone. It's a friend of mine I haven't talked to in years. I said, hello, it's a pastor friend of mine. I said, hey, how you doing, brother? Hey, how's the church? How's it going? How okay, okay, okay. And I'm like, so what can I do for you? You didn't just call me for nothing. So what's going on? He said, well, I got a situation. I didn't know who to call, but I knew that if I called you, you could help me. I went, uh, okay. He said, 
I got this amazing, wonderful family that I know, and they can't have kids. Do you know of a child to get adopted? So, so I pulled the truck over, and he said, are you there? I said, I'm here. Just give me a second. And I got myself together, and I said, send me this family's information. Ten minutes ago, a lady just called me and said there's a pregnant mom who wants to give her child to a good family. And then he got quiet. And I said, so send me that information. You see, you just have to trust that God's in the details. We don't always have clarity. Now, again, I mean, these are two people I don't know. And this is a situation that's out of my comfort zone. This isn't, I do, well, I mean, I'm facilitating lots of adoptions, but not that kind of adoption. And that's a whole nother world and just a lot of things going on. And so, but that didn't just happen. And so this God that we serve, he takes responsibility for his mission. He invites us to participate in his mission. But here's what I want you to see thirdly. He keeps the full picture concealed in his hands. And he does this on purpose. It's all by intention. You know, what happens to us so oftentimes is the, the area of our life where we, we fail so often. We fail to take steps until we, till we know where God's leading us or until we understand what this destination may be. There's too many people, too many people in the kingdom of God who are just way too fixated on clarity and the end result. And listen to what I'm going to tell you. Don't ever think for a moment that God's mission won't be accomplished because you're stuck waiting for clarity. But the sad part is, is that you're going to miss the opportunity to be a part of it. He's going to use somebody else. Somebody who understood the very simple and yet complex words of Paul in 2 Corinthians when he said, We walk by faith and not by sight. You'll never get anywhere walking by sight. Never. Never. God expects us to venture out by faith. That's what he wants you to do. And so when you feel a little uneasy, when you're like Mr. Magoo walking on the beam that's on top of the skyscraper. I know there's a bunch of y'all like, I have no idea what he just said. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you get old. But that's what you feel like. You feel so uncomfortable, and yet in that moment, you are precisely doing and are precisely where God wants you to be. It's a faith journey. 
See, look at verse 20. So they bring Paul and Silas to the magistrates, and they said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Now, all of this is because they cast out the demon of this little orphan girl. And they, the slave girl, and they, they, they are accused of teaching customs that are not lawful for Roman citizens. And then the multitude, in verse 22, rise up against them. And so now you've got this whole rebellion going. So they end up getting beaten with rods, thrown into prison, beat half to death, locked into the inner prison, and their feet bolted down in stocks. And what we say oftentimes is, The safest place you can ever be is the center of God's will. Is it? Is that the safest place? Is your goal to be safe or to be faithful? Here they are, led by God, Obeying God's universal will, doing what they know to do. God's putting them in all the places that he wants them to be. They're meeting and encountering the people that he wants them to encounter. And now they're beaten half to death and locked up in a dungeon. Wouldn't this be the moment where so many people would say, God, you led us here. And look at the mess we're in. Where are you now? What happened? Why have you allowed all this to happen? Don't we deserve better? Didn't we do the things we were supposed to do? Surely this suffering is not what you want. This can't be your will. This can't be good. This must be bad. I can't, but I sure wish I could. It'd be funny, but... God would never let me. But if I could just... If I could take one thing with me to heaven, I could just get me a copy of your best life now, give it to Paul, and say, look at, look at what we're dealing with. You see how stupid that is? Here's God's missionaries. Doing exactly what they've been charged to do. And this idea that, oh, this is bad. This is painful. This is uncomfortable. This is horrible. This can't be right. What's wrong? What did we do? God, where are you? But instead of quitting or questioning, you know what they do? They worship. They worship. And here's the principle. When we choose to praise in the midst of difficulty, God moves. He moves in that. There they are, all bolted up and bloody and banged up. And they're singing and praising God. And the Bible says all the people around them, all the prisoners are listening. I mean, could it be that if we spent more time praising God and less time complaining, 
trying to fix things and make them the way we want them to be, instead of embracing the sovereignty of God in all things. And here they are. What a picture for us to hear today. Here they are in seemingly the worst possible situation you could ever find yourself in. And they're praising the Lord. This is what I wrote on my notes. So long as ease and comfort determine our path, futility and emptiness will determine our story. That's true. Verse 33 says, And he took them that same hour and washed their stripes. So this man, this Philippian jailer, is listening as they're praising. And he's taking all this in. And he sees what's going on. And an earthquake comes and all the doors fly open and he runs in thinking everybody's gone. I mean, you can tell from the text that they're locked up in the dark because he has to get a light just to see what's going on. And then there they are. And Paul says, we have, don't, don't, don't kill yourself because it, his, it would have been punishable by death for him to lose these prisoners. And so he's just going to do it the easy way. It's easier to fall on your sword than it is to be beat to death. So, And there's Paul. No, don't do that. We're, we haven't left. We're not here. Our motivation is not to get to an easier place. Our goal in life is not to make things the way we want them to be made. Even when we're in seemingly the worst situation imaginable and the door flies open, Paul's focus is on the eternity of this jailer. And the man says, well, what must I do to be saved? And the next thing you know, they're at his house being taken care of and their wounds are being bandaged up and the man and all of his household are baptized and they're rejoicing, having believed in God. So here's the second principle. When we choose to praise in the midst of our pain, people take notice. You see, not only does it cause God to move, but it also causes God to take notice. The world pays attention to the fact that when things in our life are bad and we have this unexplainable peace and joy within us that cannot be taken away by our circumstances. Something internal is greater than that which is external. Isn't that what the Bible says? Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But you wouldn't know that by looking at so many weak and secularized believers who are living for their own comfort and for their own purpose and their own plan. And so what happens is, is that when seemingly everything's going wrong in our life and we're still praising God, it causes people around us to think, wait a minute. It makes our salvation so visible and tangible. They realize and recognize that is definitely something I do not have. How in the world do I get that? I suspect that the jailer 
had been thinking for some time as he was listening that he wanted to know. But he obviously was too afraid to ask, or I'm not sure what prevented him, but I'm sure it wasn't the first time that it rattled around his head. He was noticing all of this, but in that moment when he realized Paul and everyone didn't run away, immediately the first thing out of his mouth was what he'd been thinking about. How can I know your God? How can I have what you have? How can I be like you? How can I be a person that when everything's falling down around me, I still can praise God? How can I get a salvation that's beyond my circumstances? You know, when you're thinking about how many people are looking for clarity, they, they want to know God's will, and, and so, but they're not moving, they're just stuck. They're just stationary. And you would think that just the fact that nothing's changing, that you're not moving, that nothing's, that that in and of itself, and, and undoubtedly there's got to be people around you and you, you're coming in contact with people and God's doing things in their life. How is that not an indication that maybe Something's wrong. Like maybe it's me. Maybe I need to start walking. Maybe. You know, I love to hike. And in, in hiking, there's a, a saying that every avid hiker knows. Only a person off the path ever asks, where is the path? Nobody who's on the path ever says, hey, where's the path? Nobody. Now, the spiritual equivalent of that would be nobody who's busy accomplishing God's will ever says, God, what's your will for me again? Right? Nobody. It's when you're off the path. An indication that you're going, God, what's your will? God, what's your will? That ought to tell you you're off the path. You're off the path. You're off the path. You see, we're saying, God, show us your will. But do you really want to know his will? In other words... You might want to really know His will about some aspect of your life, but upon closer evaluation, what we may find is that you're embroiled in sexual immorality and you're asking God to show you His will. Well, His will is that, first of all, you stop doing what you're doing. Amen. That's His will. You see, you, you, you're asking God, God, show me your will for my job. And you're being unfaithful in your responsibility to your family. And so you think, why is God being silent? He's being silent because you're ignoring what you know to be doing. You're off the path. That's the problem. 
when you're saying, God, show me what to do, show me what to do. Make sure there's not things He's already shown you that you're not doing. He's a good Father and He loves you. And so, any good Father, I mean, even flawed earthly fathers, when we tell our children, when I tell my children to go upstairs and clean your room, and then they come downstairs five minutes later and they ask me a question, I go, do I, I say, is your room clean? And when they say no, I go, right? So has God told you to clean your room? Has he? And you keep asking him all these other questions, but until you clean your room, he's not going to say another thing to you. It's time to put your big boy pants on, go upstairs and clean your room. Before we ever come to God seeking some specific guidance, we should always evaluate ourselves and know, look, am I, am I doing what God already wants me to do? You know, it only makes sense. The more time we spend with God, the more time we spend abiding in His Word, the more we're going to know His character and nature and ways, right? We're going to know Him more deeply, the more confident then we're going to become in what He would have us to do, right? We're going to gain confidence in that. All of that's going to come by spending time, right? Time breeds that. You've been married a long time like I have? Sometimes people say, man, it's like, it's like Lisa can read your mind. Well, no, she can't read my mind. But we've been married so long, she knows what I'm thinking. She knows what I'm going to say. She knows how I feel about something. She knows. We don't, we, she doesn't have to ask me. She knows. She knows exactly what I'm going to do in a situation. She knows. I can remember there's so many illustrations of this, but we uh, went and visited some folks and... Uh, they were, you know, out of church and having all these problems. And so, anyway, it was a situation where I, I needed some backup, so I took Lisa with me. And so we go to visit them, and, you know, it was like the Spirit directed Lisa to come with me. I thought that it was because of the situation I needed her to have some input with the, with the wife, and so it would be more effective, the two of us, to be there. And so that was how I was spiritualizing her being with me. But we got there, and we sat down Well, they had made some some uh, sandwiches for us. And uh, they had these little, like, finger sandwiches or something. And, you know, and I'm, I'm focused on what we're here for, but they bring these little sandwiches, you know, and so I get one and put it on a little plate, and Lisa gets one and put it on the plate. Well, anyway, of course, I'm talk, 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 talking. Well, I'm Lisa, I can sense she's troubled. And I'm... Thinking, like, am I saying something wrong? Like, what? But, I mean, I can, I know something's wrong, but I don't know what it is, but I know something's wrong. The, the warning signs are up. And uh, 
Just as I took a break and somebody else started talking, I grabbed a little sandwich and I put it in my mouth and I took a bite and then I knew what was wrong. <laughs> now, I knew I couldn't just hurl it out of my mouth right there in their living room. So I got that big glass of tea and you ever swallow something with no chews? You just put it down. And I thought, if I die, let me die. But I'm not chewing that. And I put that sucker back down on the plate. And I looked at Lisa, and she gave me that look. And the second they took their eyes off, and she went, took that sandwich right off my plate. Ate both of them. Not a word spoken. We're like superheroes, man. We go out to the car. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Nobody even knew what happened. If my wife wouldn't have been there, I'd probably died. Because I, I couldn't have took another bite of that sandwich. But she knew when she bit into it, she goes, Tony is going to hate this. So, that comes from time, right? Now, if you spend time... Time, time with God all the time. Every day you're with God in His Word. You begin to know Him. You know His tendencies. You know His priorities. You know His character and personality. You begin to know Him. And the more time you spend with Him, the more you know Him. And doesn't it make sense? The more you know Him, the less you're going to feel like you're guessing all the time, right? Yes. And so the more you know Him, and all of you that know Him... Know this is true, and those of you that don't need to know this, the more you know God, guess what? The more you trust God. You can't know Him more and not trust Him more. If you don't trust Him more, you're not knowing Him more. Because the more you know Him, the more you trust Him. Because the more you know Him, the more you realize that He always does what He says He's going to do, that He always takes full responsibility of His mission, that He invites us to be a part of it. You begin to realize this is how God operates. You begin to go, and so then Trusting God doesn't, it's not some weird feeling thing. It's just a natural progression of life. Paul, think about this. His second missionary journey, he goes, where did, what is he? The first place he goes is right back to where he had the most trouble. That's the first place he goes. Now, clearly this isn't a person who's trying to take the easy route. And he takes the shortest route to the worst place he visited, where they tried to kill him. And he, he takes Timothy with him, who was known by where all the men who tried to kill him were from. That's just normal for Paul. How does that happen? Because he knows God. And if you know God, you trust God. And when you don't trust God, when you have trust issues, it's because you don't know Him. And the only way to know Him is through His Word. I don't know how to make it any simpler. So God takes responsibility for His mission. He invites us to participate. He keeps the full picture concealed in His hands. And number four, God desires for us to be a part of something amazing. The only way you get to see it 
is you have to just trust him. And you just realize that saying that all things are possible in God is, is different from, from really believing that. And just getting to a place in your life where you realize you're always, I mean, we're human. We're always going to like good days over bad days. Listen, you know, I don't wake up in the morning and think, God, I, I sure hope today I get thrown in prison so I can praise you. I mean, no. I don't want the day to go bad. But if the day goes bad, the day goes bad. If it, if it is, it is. And I'm going to praise him in the midst of it. And so if it's good, praise the Lord. If it's bad, praise the Lord. But here's what I know about God. He wants us to be a part of something amazing. He, because that's who he is. What he's doing is amazing. And so if you are doing what he's doing, it's going to be amazing. You're not going to be standing around going, this is what I know about God. I'm not asking God, was that you? Because if I'm asking that, it probably wasn't. The things God's doing, you just know they're God. Right? Let me introduce you to little Presley. Show me little Presley. There she is. That's the little girl from the day I was driving down the road. Look at this next picture. There's the family leaving the hospital. Two days before the mom went into labor, I got everybody together for the first time. you never seen a circus like this. Believe, think of the circuses I, I'm orchestrating around here. And this is a whole nother level. So I'm trying to, I got to get all these people together. I got to get all these legal documents signed. I got to get all these things, you know, but the whole time. The whole time, I think of how I got here, and I and I and I think of how many people, when the lady called, would have just said, "Well, I don't know about that. Have you called an adoption agency, or isn't there people that take care of that, or you know what I mean?" Just like going, "I I, I don't have time to deal with all this. I mean, I, this isn't really my thing. I mean, I, I'll tell somebody else who could help you, or." Mm -mm. I knew that just didn't happen. And so I kept going. And it was a pain in the neck. I finally get everybody together. We just found out when her due date was at this time. And she says, it's Friday. I'm meeting everybody for the first time together, except for the mom. I've met with her I don't know how many times. And we're all together, and the lawyer's there. And I said, now, when are you due? And she said, tells me the date. And I go, everyone kind of perks up in the room like, that's Monday. It's Friday. That's Monday. 
I said, oh, yeah. And then all the, all the hurdles start coming up in the room. Well, this and this and this and this. And I go, woo, time out. Everybody shut your mouth. Time out. Here I am in the lawyer's office. Shut up. No talking. Let me just remind you how we all got to this room. Okay? I said, somebody I haven't talked to in 15 years calls me out of the clear blue sky. And 10 minutes later, a pastor friend of mine I haven't talked to in probably four years calls me. Let me explain something to you. You might see a bunch of hurdles, but I'm telling you right now, God has something amazing in store for this baby. And so y'all need to shut up and get with the program because this thing's about to happen. Sunday morning, I'm in my office. It's about 5 o'clock Sunday morning. My phone rings. I'm like, this cannot be good. She goes, Pastor Tony, my water just broke. I said, okay. I started making phone calls. After church, we went down there and saw that baby. And believe me, there's a hundred complexities I don't have time to go into, but I'll just never forget the moment I walked in that hospital room. And the, it's standing room only. And that young couple, for the last decade, has just been hoping and praying and believing somehow God was going to give them a child. And they drove down from North Mississippi. And I walk in that room and her parents are there. His parents are there. Every aunt, every uncle, every... I mean, it was like... And Lisa and I walk in the room and they all just stopped and they go, thank you. Thank you. Look at what's happened for our family. And all these people. And I said, it's not me. It's God. And so we talked for a few minutes and I said, now I want to, let's all get in a circle and hold hands. And little Presley was there in the middle of us. And I started praying and I said, God, I don't know. But I know that this is more than just these two amazing people are going to get to see this little girl take her first steps. This is more than just the first day at kindergarten. This is more than just the first words. This is more than just, you know, her, her first prom. This is, this is more than that. I said, God, you did something amazing to put all of this together. And, and all these strangers are in this room and this child is going to this family and you supernaturally orchestrate all this. And I said, Lord, here's your little girl that you made and knit together in her mother's womb but intended for this family to raise. And God, I pray she is a glory magnet for you. I pray she grows up and every day of her life. She says, let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you how I got here. Let me tell you about my parents. Let me tell you about a God who was moving on my behalf before I was even able to know anything. But let me tell you what he did. That's what he did. He's an amazing God. If you just trust him, just walk with him and realize, listen, who knows what he's going to do? 
But if it's him, does it matter? So they go into, think about, think about Paul and Silas. They go to Philippi. They walk into this giant pagan metropolis. There's a group of ladies that meet to pray out by the riverside. But they never heard the gospel. And he shares the gospel. And this Lydia lady, I mean, he doesn't know anything about her. She gets saved. And her family gets baptized. And she invites them back to her house. And then they leave and start preaching the gospel in the streets. And this little slave girl, this precious girl created in the image of God, but who's in bondage to evil. Not only is evil within her, but then she's in control of evil men who are using her and exposing her to make money. And her anguish has become their profit. She doesn't know there's a Savior who delivers captives from their bondage. She doesn't know that. But they talk to her and they cast out her demon. And meanwhile, all this is going on, there's a man who gets up every day and puts his uniform on and goes to the prison because he's a corrections officer. And I don't know, but I'm assuming that every day he's walking to work and he's thinking there's got to be more to life than this, but I don't know what it is. And, uh, and his whole existence revolves around just punching the clock and making sure people do what they're supposed to do. And that nagging emptiness and lack of purpose. And he has a precious family at home that he loves. But he can't answer the questions. They can't answer the questions. Nobody knows, but... In some crazy turn of events, he ends up guarding a prisoner, but it's not like any prisoners they've ever guarded before. And they're praising God in the midst of their struggle. And here's Paul and Silas. Paul's broken apart from Barnabas, and now Barnabas has gone with John Mark, and they've taken on this teenage boy, Timothy. Paul doesn't realize that Timothy's going to become like his son. He's going to be his, that, that Timothy's going to look to Paul as his father in the Lord. And, but Paul doesn't realize all this now. But, they, they, but he, the Spirit just leads him to bring him with him. And, they, and then he's there and he, he sees all this. And listen to me, by the end of this text, you have this wealthy, affluent Lydia. This poor slave girl and this middle class corrections officer. And that's the beginning of the church at Philippi. And you can read Philippians and see all the amazing things that God did through that church, and they meet, they don't have anywhere to meet, they don't have, and they meet at Lydia's house because she has a big house, because she's wealthy. And all of this happens when people are just doing what they know to do and trusting God in all the things they don't know. And there's a message for us 
There's a message for us in this text. We don't need clarity. We need trust. Our problem is not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't trust God enough to do what He's already told us to do. Could this be the day that you come to grips with the reality of where you are with God and you say, God, I'm going to clean my room today. I'm going to clean my room. I'm going to stop complaining about all the things that aren't the way I want them to be. And I'm going to clean my room. Because I trust you. And I know that you've called me to be a part of something amazing. And I want that. None of us here want a life of mediocrity. No, none of us want to look back and say, well, what could have been, what should have been. Well, listen to me. You're going to have to walk by faith. And it starts with what you know you need to do. The question is not, God, what is your will for my life? But the question is, what is your will for the world? And how can I participate in your plan? That's the question. What are you doing in this world, God? And how can I participate in that? Let's stand and bow our heads.